welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I am joined by Hari Arthanari. He is a faculty at the Harvard Medical School and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. His scientific training has been in the field of chemistry, physics, and biophysics, and his expertise specifically is in NMR spectroscopy and structural biology methods to understand the molecular architecture of micro machines, proteins, and nucleic acids that orchestrate life. God, that takes me back to medical school. A detailed understanding of the molecular structure and how these machines interact with each other allows us to intervene with small molecule inhibitors in disease states and that's what Hari does at Harvard and beyond. We're going to hear about a company as well in this called Virtual Flow. So Hari, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Very good, James. Thanks for having me here. You're very welcome. It's uh, quite an quite an distinguished career that, obviously peaking now at Harvard Medical School and Dana-Farber and doing some really, really cool stuff in academia, but now obviously moving into commercializing that academia in a company as well. And what a story that is. And I'm looking forward to getting into it. But uh, first of all, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? I'm from Boston. Excellent. So you're in Boston now? Yes. Are you at home or work? Are you guys back in the uh, office, uh, back in the lab? Six o'clock over here. Uh, just about the time I go to sleep. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. So, Hari, listen, as I say, it'd be great to get into your story. So for our listeners and myself, in fact, yeah, why don't you tell us a bit of your story? Sure. Um, I, I wish I could tell you a story where uh, everything was uh, perfect and nice and in a story way that uh, I, I started with uh, an experimental set and then my uh, interest peaked in chemistry and then I went on. <laughs> That's definitely not my story. Um, I was born and brought up in a very small village in, in the southern part of India. And when I was young, I first wanted to be an astronaut and uh, wow. I didn't even know how to become an astronaut. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's what I want to be. Then when I uh, was about, uh, uh, I'll say about 10 or 12 years old, I wanted to become a cricket player. And uh, that's all my dream was. Uh, and, were, you good, uh, were you good enough? Uh, I was good, but I don't think I was. I was. I thought I was very good. And like until okay. I went to the uh, city, then I knew that I was. <laughs> I, I, I was. We bowler, batsman, all rounder. Uh, I was an all rounder, a medium pitcher, and then uh, I was a better batsman. Uh, and uh, I thought I was fantastic. Uh, in the <laughs> but then you go to the city, then you know that you're not even in the top. I'm going to the cut and enter to the college. So. Um, so that, that's where my 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 life started, and uh, uh, my the way I see my goals were my father was uh, a, a, a diploma holder, my mother was uh, an eighth grader, and all I had was my immediate goals like can I become like my father? And then uh, once I graduated from uh, the school in the village, I went to the city for my college, and then my ambitions and my goals slightly widened out. Okay. Can I become something more? And that's how my life, essentially every single point of time, like I pushed the goalpost a little bit uh, further nice. because I didn't have visibility before that as to what was ahead. And that's my my life. So I went from uh, the village to the college in, uh, in uh, the city, Madras or Chennai. And I did my undergraduate in chemistry at the Madras Christian College. Uh, I actually wanted to do physics, but uh, I couldn't get the physics seat. So I did uh, the chemistry major. 
And uh, always my one of my dreams was uh, the best place in India to uh, undergo an education, which is IIT Madras. And uh, I got there for my master's degree. And that again opened my uh, vista a little bit better. Or oh, there are other opportunities that you can that you can take. And I was uh, fortunate to get a, a, a PhD position at Westland University in in Connecticut. And uh, that's where I started my journey as a biophysicist. Uh, and one of the greatest things is my PhD advisor, um, who I hated for the first uh, probably three or four months. And then I started loving him because um, he would pretty much give everything on your, put, throw everything on your plate and let you figure it out. Mm. And as a beginning, it was uh, very tough, but then you realize that's what all the PhD is all about. It's about the journey. It's about uh, breaking things and figuring it out. And he gave me that uh, freedom, which was uh, invaluable for me. And uh, then after that, my PhD, I uh, ended up for a postdoc at the Harvard Medical School, which again, broadened my vistas a little bit more. When I was doing my PhD, I was this uh, one trick pony. I knew I'm a physicist, I knew NMR. And my questions were, what can I do with NMR? And when I came to Harvard Medical School, it flipped the problem on the other way around uh, saying that, all right, uh, what is the problem? And NMR is just a technique. Uh, if NMR doesn't suit for you, how can you solve that problem? So it flips the play to look at the problem rather than looking at the machine that you have. And that was very um, uh, innovative for me in, in, at Harvard. I still remember this one um, group meeting, which I gave to a collaborative project with a, a legendary enzymologist, uh, Chris Walsh. And I was talking about this technique, this new technique that I've developed uh, to, and the, the whole project we are looking at is looking at these machines called non-ribosomal peptidyl synthetases, which are these machines that bacteria use to make this really beautiful molecule. And we're trying to study the structure, but I'm developing this new technique to study the structure. And uh, I've talked all about this technique, um, how we're going to do uh, this double quantum coherence uh, transfer here and on all. And then he, at the end of the talk, uh, he said, Harry, it's a very good talk. As you can see the excitation, the excitement in it. But I didn't hear anything about what the biology is going to be eliminated by this technique. All I heard mm -hmm. about is the technique. That was kind of a, a really uh, a sober moment. It's like, yes, if the technique doesn't answer a particular question, it might be futile. So it was an interesting, uh, it is a lovely journey that I had at Harvard Medical School. I learned a lot of things. And uh, normally a postdoctoral career is about two years uh, or three years. And I told myself, uh, I will leave um, my postdoc if there goes a month where I haven't learned anything new. And that never happened after eight or nine years. So uh, that is the fascinating part. And then again, I was in the right place at the right time. I, there was a position opening at Harvard Medical School. There probably been a lot of people before that in my lab who were more, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, more, uh, talented than me to apply that position, but that position opened and I was there. And that's how I, I got there. To look back, I think that journey was uh, one of the improbable things uh, from a person whose parents and me had never left the state uh, to come to a, a, a place like this. It's, I wouldn't for a fraction of a second, it's all talent because there are people, other people who are talented, uh, equally as talented or more talented than me. But I think it's... Uh, a lot more of the factors uh, <laughs> go to where you are. And, uh, and one of the things that I had to say that I did was constantly move my goalpost uh, as I yeah. get visibility.
Yeah. And there's plenty I want to talk to you about there. You're very humble, man. And clearly you are extremely talented. And whilst I appreciate there's always an element of timing and an element of like, you know, when, when a position like that at Harvard opens, I suppose it's similar in, in medicine, you know, when a consultant job or a professorship opens at a certain institution, there'll be people that have been waiting a decade for that, that may have ended up retiring or may have had to move to something else because they wouldn't have got it, but it just happens to be right for those people. So I do appreciate there's an element of that. However, clearly you're very talented, clearly you're very humble, but I want to talk to you about firstly, that element that you described around your goals. Interestingly, you described not having a huge amount of visibility on what's ahead. I think partly that sounds like partly a philosophy of how you've run your entire career, quite frankly, of of actually just doing what's in front of you extremely well and not thinking too far ahead. However, I suppose there's also an element of that because of humble upbringings, you weren't aware of opportunity even too far ahead of you. And so it really was just about setting a goal, meeting it, and then pushing a bit further. I think that's interesting because I draw parallels by no means of the same lofty, achievements as you've had but I do draw parallels with the way that I've approached my career too in that I've never really thought that far ahead I've had the visibility though I've I've realistically been able to plan I suppose in theory where I might have got to where I might have become but there's value in not doing that I think because the world changes I would have never at the age of 18 been able to say I'd have a podcast in 120 countries because podcasts didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so I was only able to go, I'll complete medical school, or at least I'll try to complete medical school. And in fact, I'll try to just pass the exams in front of me first without failing those horrifically. And let's see what happens at the next lot. And so I never, I never really thought ahead, but I think ironically and conversely and paradoxically that I think allows you more opportunity because you're you're not restricted by this path that you've cut in terms of thinking how things are going to go, which can lead to a lot of disappointment. And I think it can lead to a lot of restrictive behaviors and decisions and those types of things. I think that's that's, I suppose, my reflection on it. I'm sure there's a there's a flip side and a different argument. And for those people that absolutely know what they want to do at the end of their career, fantastic, good for you, because I wish I was that sort of person. But I think a career like yours, I think, can give real value to those people listening that just think, I haven't got a clue and I'm just going to meet this goal ahead of me and set a goal, by the way, set a goal. That's important. You know, a reason to wake up in the morning and try your hardest to do something. But it seems that that as a principle has, has, has done you very well. Um, and I'm interested in your reflection on that. What was it, in fact, and here's my question, right? Was it the fact that you didn't have that visibility because you weren't aware of the opportunities or was it more of a philosophy of how you've continued to go about building your career? I wish I could say as a philosophy, it looks like, we've made it, <laughs> but uh, it, it was a fact that I didn't have uh, uh, the visibility growing in, in, in a village. Uh, we, I didn't even have access to television. So, wow. um, uh, so the only thing uh, was a single radio. My, we're coming from a lower middle-class family. My father was the only earning member. I was the first graduate from the family. And uh, the, 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 the kind of world around you uh, builds on about, okay, can I get a job that will help me survive um, and, and feed the family? So that's the kind of the uh, thing. So I, I, the one thing which I would, I would say is that you're absolutely right. There are two ways. I mean, people can survive in either ways, right? Where mm. people can have a perfect goal 
And the story looks much more beautiful if you have a perfect full and, and you hit it uh, <laughs> all through the struggles. But for me, that was not there. Um, because every every time, my once I achieved that, I, I set the goalpost to the next part. Uh, because my first thing is to become like a father and, and get a job. Um, mm. And uh, then you go to the uh, the city, then you say, you see a lot more things. Then you say, oh, yeah, maybe I should set my goal uh, post a little bit further. And actually, I got a, a job as a medical rep um, after my undergrad. And uh, and there was a thought like, this gives me more than what my father is earning wow. and, uh, as, as a starting, which was like, should I just take this job? Uh, and then uh, that, that required a little bit of thinking. Then maybe that, then IIT came, okay, I'm going to go this. So the two things that drove me, James, are, are curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious uh, about, about everything. Um, sometimes uh, annoyingly curious about uh, things that I would know. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that really drove me to, to research. And the other thing that, um, that I have this is, is, is to do anything that I'm doing uh, with, with passion. And, and uh, mm-hmm. if I'm sleeping, I really want to sleep. I, mean, I just don't want anything else. I put my phone off. And uh, sometimes it's, I'm not saying all time is a good thing. Sometimes you have just some, some of my postdocs that say like, the paper is ready. You're going to do this for another 10 months. We're still going to get to the same thing. It's, uh, there's some point of no return, right? But the passion and the curiosity is what, what drove me over here. That's super and interesting. I, I think I think if uh, that's what I, I tell my postdocs that uh, and, and my trainees that these two things you can't train them. Uh, mm. The passion is something that you need to have and find something that you're passionate about because mm. that's very important. Now coming back to one of the points that you made, uh, it's again I think it's a double-edged sword. I think Louis Pasteur put it very nicely. In the field of observation, uh, chance prepares the favorite mind, uh, the the prepared mind. Sometimes when you're too stuck on the goal, uh, you miss other things out. And sometimes it, it's good to be a little bit distracted and a little bit non-focused. Then you're ready to accept things that, uh, that, that are right in front of you. And some, many times I, I do research where I, you, you generate a hypothesis, you do an experiment expect, expecting a particular outcome. But I think in, in most of the beautiful discoveries are... are so it's had a certain amount of serendipity in it like but you need it's out there meaning several people have seen the same results for example in today's world there's something called uh, phase separation that is going on and you ask any scientist oh i've seen this in uh in my experiment like 20 years ago but is people didn't ignore it or people didn't say that was but then having that a little bit of unfocusedness to go after that and for every successful story that comes out, there are going to be 10 that are, you're chasing a, a, mm. a, a rabbit down the hole. So, um, Penicillin so, was an accident, wasn't it? What is it? Penicillin? Yeah. Penicillin was an accident. Was an accident right? And, and, and I mean, there's a lot of serendipitous uh, discoveries in, uh, uh, in, in, in science. So it is a, a mixture of these things. Mm. You can't be just chasing wild gooses all around. But when you're doing something, just, just be aware that like, okay, if something doesn't work your way, is there something else that's presented? Uh, around you that 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 goes in uh, I think it's a combination of these I hope I answered your question there you did wonderfully <laughs> the next thing I want to talk to you about is is your PhD I've never done a PhD I've worked with plenty of people that have and I've interestingly never really asked them about what actually goes into a PhD I'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening that are interested in in what a PhD actually entails and the reason I asked the question is because you described it well, you said that a PhD is about 
the journey and freedom to figure things out, or at least that's how your supervisor made it for you. Talk to me about that, because for my intents and purposes, you know, I think now I've got a PhD in machine learning and how it pertains to healthcare. I'm like, I don't know. I've never actually asked the question. What does that actually mean? How did you actually go and do that? And what does that look like for what, three years of your life? Interesting. And mine, mine was seven years, so I probably was, was dumb enough. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, let's, uh, this is a very interesting question. And I also uh, discussed this with uh, a lot of the incoming graduate students. Uh, so people normally go from an undergraduate to a master's and everything. Their things are didactic. So, so you learn concepts. Um, and you learn some of the concepts where half of them, you don't even know if you're going to use them or not later in your life. You Essentially, you're given an entire tool set. And uh, if you ask me to go back to my integration and calculus, I probably have to take a book and sit for it because I've learned it, then I've never used it and I've lost half of it. Uh, if you ask me to do a triple integral over a surface, I really need to take a book and sit for a couple of days, right? Um, the learning process comes on uh, things that people have established and curated. Let me step back and I think people always say, they say believe a scientist. I say, don't believe a scientist, believe the science. The science mm. is the scientist is the person looking at the truth. And the same person, me, could look at something, deduce something, and then you might come and say, Hari, what you saw might have been true from your vantage, but it's not the, it's not the truth. That's the greatness of science is that the science gets corrected. The scientist could be wrong. All right. And the same scientist could come and correct back him or herself. So science is about finding the truth, right? And these truths that people think they are very validated truth become learning materials. And that's what is taught in an undergraduate. That's what is taught. And sometimes those things could also change. For example, still today, people talk about a central dogma where you go from a DNA to an RNA to a protein as a one-way street. The virus actually takes an RNA and puts it back into a DNA uh, using a reverse transcriptase. So these things change as, as we go. But for most of this solid science, that's what is taught. For me, a PhD is about a journey of a problem solving. And it tells you a, a lot more about rather than how you'd solve that problem that previously people haven't solved. But you have the tools to investigate that particular problem. And in today's context, uh, the problems are much harder because the low hanging fruits have been plucked by people before us and not to uh, uh, belittle what they have done uh, because those are easier problems, but they didn't have the tools that we have today. Today, we have much better tools. So for example, 30 years ago, if somebody has to know what a gene uh, is doing or what the effect of the phenotype, they have to have a really complex question. Today, you can order a CRISPR, chop out that gene and ask that question very easily. So when they solved that problem, they had very little tools. Now we have much better tools, but much harder problems to solve, right? And there is no, um, if you know the answer, this is what I tell my, 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 my trainees. If you do an experiment for the first time, you get the result immediately. Good for you. If you do the second experiment, I also get the results in the first uh, go. All right, go to the third one. And if you do the third experiment and you do this and you get the results immediately, stop and wait. If it's this easy, somebody would have already done it. So go back to the literature and see, see what, what, what's, what, what's out there. So the problems are harder. Now, what PhD, in my opinion, uh, teaches you is to engage different elements of what you have learned to solve this problem. At the same time, um, 
go through the pain of failures because uh, the failures are the one that is going to lead you to, to the thing. So you would do an experiment that didn't work, that tells you something or doesn't tell you something. And then it's that journey that you go through in figuring out that one thing. And when you, that pain that you go through of, of, of repeated failures, and then once you see that, uh, uh, the thing that's come, coming out of it, then that's the eureka moment. Like, all right, I solved these things because I negated this route, I negated this route. And these negated routes is what it led to me. But you can't see that road on your first year of your graduate school. Another There's always thing. in a graduate school career, there's this um, honeymoon period where people come into the lab. They're like, everything is good. They're learning new things. And then after seven or eight months, it goes into like, oh my God, nothing is working. Uh, this experiment I did is not working. And then what happens is that they would, the first thing is that excitement of learning new things. Then they've learned it, but then they go into the grind, which, which is that the problem is out there. And the mathematicians say that the heart of the problem, it resists itself to, to, to get solved. And then, um, then you, you, you to go through the grind. And then they come into this, for example, it's almost like, I, I tell them it's like, uh, it's like trekking or it's like hiking, climbing a mountain. You see the mountain is up there, but you can't really go there. It's one step at a time. Put your head down one step at a time. Go, just be aware of your surroundings. See what's, what, what, what the experiments tell you. And then you go there. And normally what happens is that when people graduate, they get so many ideas mm. because they've gone through this grind. They have found that particular thing. They're super excited. When they're writing the thesis, they'll get like so many more new ideas because they've gone through that. And it's about the journey. It's about the discipline. It's about um, problem solving. That's all the PhD is about. Uh, in my opinion, all you learned in terms of technique and didactic, you've done it before that. The PhD is about, can I give you a new problem? And can you think differently? To, to, to get to that? And do you have the discipline to bear that, uh, uh, the suffering and, and, and pain to go through that? The pain I meant is it's kind of a mental pain, right? So whenever you're doing something new, your mind rests and say, hey, I, I don't want to do this. Uh, and then when you go past that, that's when learning happens. I cannot believe I've never asked anyone this question before. And I'm so glad that you've come onto this podcast for that answer alone. That has given me so much context behind why so many people do PhDs and then go on to found particularly health tech companies, but I can imagine lots of different companies, even those elements around experiencing the journey of finding a problem, experiencing failure, going deep to find your own resilience, bouncing back to eventually find a solution, that eureka moment, seeing results, having the motivation to think about you. Like so much of that is, is similar, you know, conceptually similar to founding a company, coming up with an idea, failure. There's lots of similar components there. So I can see how, well, particularly what you said at the end, that once you've gone through all that hardship, you've done the grind and you then, that exhale moment and yeah. you finished and all the rest of it. And then the ideas will come flooding. Then clearly I can see why people go on to found companies because seemingly that is the moment whereby they go, hold on a minute, I could commercialize this. Or what if we did this thing differently? Or what if we added this to the, you know, I can, I can completely see on that narrative, how you then end up going to found a company, which I believe is a similar journey to what you've been on with virtual flow, right? Yes. Tell me about yeah. virtual flow. 
Sure. Um, I'll, I'll give, give you a little bit more background on my research before I go to virtual flow, but that'll connect it mm, better with, sure. uh, with, with what virtual flow is. So what I do, uh, what my expertise are, uh, the word expertise is also using in a very loose way over here. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's probably the, uh, many people ask me, so tell me about you. As this is, so we're almost like, I'm telling you about what I do. Uh, me is lot, I think, I would like to think it's a lot larger than uh, what I told you, right? But anyways, uh, so um, I'm a biophysicist, which means I use techniques of physics to understand uh, biology. Let's put it that way simply. And as you know, uh, life as we know is orchestrated by about 20,000 machines in our body called proteins. Uh, the way your hair is today, where my hair is crazy today, uh, everything <laughs> depends on proteins, uh, uh, in my opinion. And uh, we try to look at the architecture of these proteins, um, how they look like. And uh, for people who are not uh, familiar with the structure of the proteins, these are about a, a hundred to a thousand times smaller than what can be seen with a powerful light microscope. So we use principles of physics um, uh, to deduce the structure of these molecular machines. Now, once we understand the structure of these machines, we can design uh, molecules like a, a wrench that will go and uh, uh, stuck, get stuck in this particular machine. And then it'll make the machine stop working in most cases or activated in, in, in other cases. So most of the drugs, uh, not, I will not say all of them, uh, small molecule uh, drugs, uh, they do affect one of these machines uh, and uh, inhibit one of these machines. And the idea that we have, or, or my lab understands is that to understand the architecture of the machine, that gives us idea about the mechanism of how this machine would work. And then in a disease case, if this machine is hyperactive or underactive, we try to intervene with small molecules. And uh, throughout my postdoctoral career, when I start, when I transition from being a spin physics person where I uh, did NMR method development uh, using quantum mechanics uh, and, and theory of spin physics, I uh, started applying this to biology. So then I left my, uh, what do you call it, my favorite space, my, my safe space where I know I can operate. <laughs> then I left that space to go to uh, something called uh, drug discovery, where uh, we have to go through a number of molecules um, to see which of the molecule would fit perfectly. And I did this really the painful way. Um, so we, we do this thing called using high throughput screening. So essentially we take, uh, we set up an assay that gives you a yes, no answer. Uh, let's say like, like a traffic light. If things are good, it'll give you a green light or if things are inhibited, it'll give you a red light. And then we add one molecule at a time or, or, or a bunch of molecules at a time. Then we go to deconvolve. So you have these huge plates and the proteins I got to make, take it to a robot, which will add one of these compounds. It's not the intellectually stimulated. The intellectual stimulation stops when you develop the assay. And then it's just manual labor. <laughs> um, essentially, you take, put the plates, uh, uh, put the proteins in there, take it to this. And it's kind of boring to me at that point. Um, but you had to do that. Uh, you had to go get through this to identify the molecule. Then the intellectualization happens. So I was, uh, this, this is what we do. Uh, we develop new uh, NMR methods to push the frontiers of what we can see. Uh, there are several techniques. There are at least three main techniques that are experimental techniques that our people use to look at these proteins. One is X-ray crystallography, uh, pioneer again in, in UK where you are, and uh, the cryo electron microscopy, and the other is NMR spectroscopy. And uh, the three are complementary. They have their own um, uh, advantages and disadvantages. And nuclear magnetic resonance is the technique that allows you to see what the protein does in, in solution. 
uh, if I'm hyperinflated, it's like uh, looking at a car, but not a picture of a car, but uh, opening the hood and looking at the car running. Uh, so that it, it allows us to look at dynamics. And uh, we use uh, um, large magnets, magnets that are about uh, a field strength that is about a million times uh, more than what the Earth's magnetic field is. And then we drop our sample inside this, and then we orchestrate uh, uh, the when we say uh, atomic level resolution in NMR, we orchestrate the uh, proton inside the nucleus of an atom. So if you think about uh, a protein, a protein is nothing but a garland of atoms uh, suspended in space in some three-dimensional conformation. Sure. We not only look at the atom, we look at what's inside the nucleus of an Whoa. atom. That's our reader. So essentially, we, we listen to them singing to us. Um, and this is, I para, I'm paraphrasing this from a, a, a Nobel Prize uh, that uh, Purcell was given. He said, where the faint magnetic melodies of this became visible by this technique. Wow. And people might know this technique as uh, also MRI, which is uh, a, a similar technique. And initially it was called nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. And they put the word nuclear, nobody went into the machine. So they kind of <laughs> dropped the word nuclear and called it magnetic resonance imaging. That's not a joke. That's uh, <laughs> that's the reality. Wow. People thought it was a, a nuclear bomb type device. So... <laughs> So coming back to, to virtual flow, um, so that, that was my, um, so we understand the structure, we are now experimentally find these molecules. So when you're looking for experimentally find these molecules, uh, in an academic setting, you can probably do about 200,000 small molecules, you can screen them. Uh, a company could do maybe uh, uh, a million or something like that. But if you look at the total space of possible molecules, uh, that are there that could effectively could become a drug. Uh, that's about 10 to the power of 60, which is 10 followed by 60 zeros. And that's more um, um, atoms than what we have in the universe. So that's a very large number. And it'll be kind of rich and naive to think that all those molecules will be, can become drug. Uh, that's not possible. But let's take, for example, that just a fraction of that, 10 to the power of 60, a tiny fraction, that'll be a quintillion molecules that has a possibility that we can even search that space to define drug-like molecules or to find molecules that would bind might not be drug-like, but we can make them as a drug by further modification, right? Let's just take that for instance. So uh, I wish I had this, uh, I always had this idea that this is large space that is there, but computationally it wasn't very accessible to us. And uh, I wasn't even working on it to be, to be, to be fair on it. Like I, I had this in my, in my horizon, I wasn't working on it. That I was giving a talk about my experimental uh, uh, validation and, and finding of a small molecule for a particular target at a conference. Then uh, one of the uh, graduate students uh, came to me after that and say, hey, uh, you screened about 200,000 molecules. What if I can say that I can screen uh, uh, 100 million or, or more molecules for you? I said, you should be crazy. Uh, but then- uh, <laughs> But yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> and he was a graduate student from, um, he was a mathematician and a computer scientist from Berlin. And he was thinking about uh, upscaling this. And, uh, uh, but he, his background was more on, on, on uh, more of, of, of computational mathematics. He had a, no knowledge of biology, but so he said, can I come visit your lab for six months as a part of his undergrad? Uh, so sorry, graduate uh, program. Then that's Christoph Kurgula. And then he uh, came and visited me for six months. Yeah, such a fun time working on this. So um, it's almost like he was the architect and I, uh, and I was like, I need this, I need this. And then <laughs> put together uh, this platform uh, called Virtual Flow, which um, leverages the power of uh, 
parallel uh, uh, comp computing, essentially computing clusters. So normally it takes about, let's say, uh, okay, let, let, let me break at this point. So that's how the platform was developed. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit, if you, if you have no other questions, I'll tell you a little bit about what virtual screening is. And then well, let's go to virtual flow, unless you have any other questions. Uh, Sounds good to me. All right. So what are we looking for in, in, in a virtual screening? So the idea is that you want to find a small molecule, as I said, that'll, that'll fit into a pocket and then just, just run the protein and make it small. So how does this work? So uh, this works by thermodynamics. And to me, everything in life works on thermodynamics, but I might be alone in that uh, thing. So most of biology is governed by thermodynamics. So there's something called the free energy. So if uh, a molecule binds to a particular place, then there's favorable free energy, then, um, then that, the reaction happens. Now you can experimentally identify these free energies and that's what we've been doing. Um, but what you can also do is that you can theoretically calculate it. So the free energy is composed of two components, the enthalpy and the, and the entropy. And there are certain ways that we can deconvolve what happens when a small molecule binds to a particular protein. And I can do this in a computer. So I can take a small molecule, I can put it inside the pocket and I can say, what are the possible interactions? And then we can, we can compute it. Now, the problem is that let's, it's very easy for me to say, take a small molecule, put that inside the hole. Now, imagine you have a, a, a hole and I give you a, a Lego block. You can put this in any possible orientation, mm. right? You can, you can essentially uh, orient this in any possible orientation. So the first thing is a computational problem as to how we, how we exhaustively search the space. There we borrow things from computer science um, to say that like people have developed phenomenal um, um, uh, algorithm based on how a gray wolf would hunt, a pack of gray wolf would hunt, how an ant would uh, lay its path towards the target. There are several other mechanisms for searching the space. And for each search space, essentially, you don't want to spend a lot of time, but you want to get the things done much first, but you also want to go towards the target. So how do you do that? Similar to what a Google Maps would do. If you're at a particular place and you need to go to place B, there might be 10 different routes. How does a Google map know which is the right route to take? That's an algorithm that, that they does. So this is something that, that, that's similar that we do in, 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 in our uh, docking approach. Then for each of this particular placement, we calculate the energy. Now, we assume that the nature would find its minimal energy by itself, the best orientation. And whatever we got the best orientation, we document as a docking score. And the docking score reveals uh, the probability of that molecule to bind to it. And also gives the idea of the potency, how, how good does a molecule fit in there. Now to do this for a single molecule, it'll take about 15 seconds on a computer. Now, if you calculate it uh, for a billion molecules, it'll take about 475 years. And uh, we want to do this in a matter of days. So that's the problem that, that, that we are going. The ideas that I, that I told you about uh, uh, docking and experimentally, sorry, computationally identifying how a small molecule binds is nothing new. It's been there for the last 10 to 20 years. But what was uh, the realization that both uh, Christoph had and others, there's another person in the field, uh, Shrikat and Irvin, who are the original pioneers in the, in the field of docking, they had is that the larger the library that you screen, the better your chances of getting a potent inhibitor. Now I should tell you that the process by which we dock this molecule computationally has some blind spots into it. For example, in certain proteins, once the molecule binds, the protein might adapt itself to bind it better. The protein might move. 
we really can't accurately model that in a shorter time. That'll take like properly for, for one molecule, it might take days of computational time to model that. So we don't allow for confirmational flexibility of the protein when we're doing this at a large scale. There might be a single water molecule that is tightly bound to the protein, which we don't know about. And the molecule binding, our small molecule, could liberate that water molecule, which gives entropic uh, We don't know that. We can't compensate because we don't use uh, explicit waters that will, again, cost a lot in, in chemical time, uh, in, in computational time. But which means that this process of, of uh, virtual uh, drug discovery has its blind spots. And I, I would think like this, like, the virtual drug discovery isn't me, I'm a terrible soccer player. But if you give me 10,000 chances on a penalty shootout, James, you think I can hit one? I think so. Yeah, so that's the idea over here. So what we do is that if you expand the chemical space that you're, that you're searching, you might miss one compound, but you might get a compound that's, that's you might, you have a chance, you increase your chance because the lights are dim. And instead of shooting one dart, I'm choosing a thousand dots and one of them is going to hit the bullseye. So that's the idea that 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 uh, um, it, it was actually published a year before when our paper was in the preparation. We're a little bit sad there, but uh, it, it is good uh, that that the field uh, recognized that uh, the bigger is better in virtual screening. I'm paraphrasing a news and news article from Nature. So when you expand the chemical space, you 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 find better molecules. And now uh, what we want to do is that we want to take this to the next level and go to billions of molecules. Now, one of the things that people, uh, even I would have asked if, if uh, I was doing this uh, a few years ago is that, okay, you take a billion of molecules in uh, uh, sample space in a computer, and then you find a molecule, what do you do with this? I mean, so you had to now go synthesize it. Uh, and then, uh, so that was the, one of the first bottlenecks, but that was changed by the revolution in the chemistry industries. Now there are a lot of chemical companies that say that, hey, we offer you a, a 10 billion molecule library. It doesn't mean that we have all the 10 billion molecules sitting in our shelf, but if you find a hit, we have the, the pathways, the, the synthetic pathways perfectly coded in our system. We can synthesize this molecule for you in about three weeks. And this is offered by a chemical companies. So now it's in what we call an on-demand synthesis. Wow. And now this intangible space suddenly becomes tangible to you. Now you can go find these guys and then you can ask the chemical company, hey, this comes from your library. Can you synthesize for me? These guys have already thought about before putting these out, they all thought about the synthetic pathway, they thought about what building blocks and they have these building blocks they can synthesize it from. That is, was a huge, one of the revolution that, that helps it. The second thing is, how do you go search for billion molecules? <laughs> you use the, the, the computing clusters, right? And uh, we were, uh, I, I would say, uh, we were a little bit elite. We were at Harvard and we had good computational uh, uh, clusters. Uh, but the problem being at Harvard is being at Harvard because you're not the only guy on the computational cluster. There's probably <laughs> a physicist. Uh, there's probably a guy who wants to do something else, which I think is completely irrelevant. But uh, talk about first world problems. This is up there. Exactly. My astrophysicist is taken up by computational computer. Yeah. Exactly. And he probably thinks that I'm crazy. Uh, but, anyways, uh, so what, what uh, that huge computing cluster is used by several other people. So we took about four months of computational time um, to uh, screen through about a billion molecules. And that's the paper that we published in, uh, in, wow. in, in, in Asia. 
and that was the first cream and we found very potent inhibitors right off the off the bat we didn't even do any other chemistry these are molecules we bought them and and they were they were really potent now um so then we realized, and that's that's the time we published in March 2020, and then we went into a lockdown because of the pandemic. Now you're sitting at home, uh, you don't have access to the lab, and then what can you do? And that's when we start about, started uh, thinking about um, deploying this in the cloud. And the, the cloud has a lot more computational power than any university can do. And the, one of the things we, we were happy about it is that this process actually, the, this, this, we published as an open source platform. We gave the libraries that, that we have made, everything uh, open source. Actually, we also used open source elements, uh, to be fair enough, in our platform, but we wanted want to patent, we want to democratize this. That was my, at least uh, Christoph and I idea, is that this allows now not only the big pharmaceutical industries or the Harvards to do, anybody would have access to a, a computing cluster in AWS or, or, or Google or, or Azure or one of the things, can use our methods. And we also was hoping and, and uh, that people would contribute more towards this, like make, make the things better. And that's happening as well. And <clears throat> that's, that's when we went into the lockdown. And then we said, uh, okay, can we do anything for COVID? Because that's what puts out in this lockdown. And <clears throat> luckily for us, the uh, scientific community always, always think the science always stands <laughs> on shoulders of giant. I mean, you cannot like uh, overemphasize this, the, the, this aspect. The scientific community has been putting out structures like into the domain without even have publications out, like literally by the day we're getting new structures. The structures wow. are the uh, starting point for yeah. our uh, virtual screening. Yeah. And then we started uh, the virtual screening campaign on COVID and we targeted pretty much every protein that we can think of, uh, at least the viral proteins. And then we put that data, the entire data, we did this in, in, in a cloud computing setup with 50 billion docking instances. And wow. then we put that into the public domain for everybody to access and saying that anybody who finds a hit, run with it. We put the entire data on the on, on the public domain. And uh, that's when there's a lot of um, uh, companies that came and, and said, can you do this for us? Can you do this? Uh, this Interesting. This yeah. <clears throat> and then um, being in an academic setup, there are certain, um, uh, what do you call it? restrictions with IP if you do this academically uh, and people are willing to uh, pay, then we said, can we start a, a new co around this? And uh, so that's where our uh, idea for starting a new co came. It's, it's, not, it's based on demand in this case, rather than our vision to, uh, to think about it. But once we started thinking about the new co, then again, ideas flooded in, and then we started going in different directions uh, with the company itself. It's an incredible story, and oh goodness, I mean, if there are any venture capitalists listening, I probably want to get in touch with you because it seems that the 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 value you've created here is absolutely enormous. It must be incredibly exciting just sitting on what you now have had almost proven to you just the sheer volume of impact you could create and are creating already. I mean that 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 in itself must just be, I mean ridiculous but i also think that you have such a talent for explaining things which i suppose an academic it, it, that's nice that's great <laughs> almost expect some talent but you know i've been in health tech for quite a while and never really understood drug discovery i now completely understand drug discovery i know exactly what that means i've never had it explained to me in such incredible I apologize if i give you this idea because i don't just uh, uh, uh 
understand drug discovery. I'll tell you a little bit more uh, after this as to what the problems are with this, because I want to give the complete story, right? It's never, in science, you always give the complete story. So uh, go ahead, sorry. No, I, I was just going to say that I, I've never really understood that process until until you've explained it. Uh, I think you've got an extreme talent for that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose my question was going to be around the the potential of the impact here is this a stepwise change because it seems to me this is a stepwise change there rarely is a stepwise change when it comes to to innovation and there are a handful of examples throughout time of something really creating a huge step in in how quickly we discover incredible things like drugs etc but it seems to be this is this might be one of those thresholds one of the humbling uh, parts of uh, uh actually one of the interesting parts of science is that it humbles you often. Yeah. Um, and uh, you always say that you said that I was humble and I was, I've been humbled by science. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you think you have something. <laughs> finally, it's like, yeah, but then, so think, <laughs> one of the things that we do in this, uh, in this process that I've, that I've explained to you is that to find a molecule that will bind to a protein and, and, and inactivate that protein. Right. But that's an isolation. Now, the problem is that what happens when I take this molecule and put it into a cell? Uh, now, is sure. there another protein that it would bind to and inactivate that too that'll kill the cell? That's one of the problems that I, that I can solve a little bit easier. The other problem is that does it even get inside the cell? Mm. Um, is it orally available? Or there's another enzyme that's going to chew it up. And uh, okay, it's orally available in mice. Does it mean that the same thing happens in, in, in the humans? Mm. So this transition is, is another major hurdle, right? Uh, okay, it's, I, I somehow think it's, Right now, I can say it's easier to find molecules that inactivate a protein. It's harder to take them into into, into a protein. Yes. And that's where we're developing new methods to see that uh, if we can do this. Because if you're in this era, uh, especially with alpha fold uh, um, spitting out structures, which is our starting point, and we have cryo-EM and other uh, other structural techniques giving us beautiful structures, dynamics, um, we we can look at a lot of these things. Now, we can identify molecules. But now, can I... Can the company or, 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 or can, can anybody increase the chance of these molecules going through that journey? Almost like a journey that you would have in the, uh, in the 1500s. Like, okay, you have your horse and think, can you like get to the finishing point can, or, or somebody else going to kill you in the middle, right? Now there are, we would be blind if you didn't uh, embrace the things of AI and, and, and ML. And uh, the question is that, can you train these networks to enrich that space for more drug-like molecule? Easier said than done. Um, uh, as my friend would say, if you keep training your ML with cats uh, and you give an elephant, it'll say it's four large cats. Um, so <laughs> it really depends on how, what we train the data with. And, uh, uh, and it's a much more complex problem, but I think we have the computational power to track, track these problems today and the tools like uh, ML to try track these problems today. So this is where we want to go, is that not only to be a company that, uh, or uh, a program that looks at, if, if you can find a molecule that binds to a protein, is that now can we de-risk these molecules sufficiently enough to take them to the, to the next stage? And here we probably would, uh, would, would depend on techniques that we're developing, depending on techniques that other peoples have developed, depending on some computer science techniques that nobody even have thought about uh, that can be used for this. And I always give this example, like um, in most of our, in my NMR, we use this technique called Fourier transform. And uh, when Joseph Fourier uh, found this technique, I 
he would be rolling in his grave if he knows what all it's been used for. It was simply a mathematical concept. But today, I mean, this Fourier transform is used for everything, including like your ear is doing a Fourier transform right now. If you're sitting in an orchestra, <laughs> it, you get different frequencies that are convoluted. And then your ear is able to say, this comes from the guitar, this comes from, the, that's a Fourier transform, right? Ah. And 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 a Mars spectroscopy is doing, doing Fourier transform. Your Siri is probably doing a, a Fourier transform. So it's it's some of these techniques that, it's always connecting the dots. It's just, I mean, probably quoting Steve Jobs um, here. It, it, it's that, can you take something that people have done for something else and then you can, can you can adapt it to your field? And I think there's a lot of opportunities here where people have done in other fields uh, that we can adapt here to de-risk this uh, sufficiently. And that's what the company is, 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 is doing. Mm. And uh, Standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say. Uh, yes, it's. I, I wouldn't I mean that's one of the truths that you always find in science is that <laughs> you always stand on on shoulders of giants. So <laughs> it puts you reinventing the wheel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Hari, this is this has been such an incredibly interesting podcast for me. the The final question that I have is about commercializing academia, and I'm interested in your experience of this as an academic as somebody who clearly is passionate about the science then finding something valuable for the world and then obviously commercializing it becomes the vehicle through which you can actually create more impact it's often an area where we were talking about this just before we started recording weren't we it's often an area and and where two worlds collide that that don't often share the same interests and philosophies and things like that with obviously commercial interest and academic interests being arguably two very, very, very different things. How have you found it as an academic moving into the world of commercialization, founding a company and having to invoice people and (laughs) collect money and and trade on this stuff? How's that been for you? Uh, if you're looking for a person who's the worst example of an entrepreneur, that, that that's <laughs> I mean, right? Uh, I am not an entrepreneur by by any chance. I, I somehow I, I have this idea of 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 things should be free, um, uh, which is uh, not it's not a, it's not a good property to have. Just I'm not I'm saying that I have this idea that at least in an academic setting, publication should be freely accessible. Then if you put me on the other hand and said, okay, how 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 is this going to who's going to pay the editor and stuff like that? I don't have an answer to that. But I yes. really think that uh, that ideas should be freely shared, and uh, um, we we think about our currency as publication. So we find something, we're so happy about it, we want to tell the world about it, right? Um, and uh, saying yes, I found this. That's that's a kind of an attitude like that that, that we have over here. And um, if when I, when you flip the side, and and these uh, I think we started the company about, or we started thinking about the company about a year ago. And then if you flip the things about and put your hat, okay, you have this great idea. Why don't you start going and, and commercializing it? Uh, we have postdocs working for uh, pennies on the dollar and you don't ever find that outside the, um, uh, the, the commercial, but even academic professors don't get that paid that much. <laughs> um, the problem comes into is there's a lot more cost that goes in to make something that's commercial and making it commercial, especially in the, in the healthcare sector is not like, Hey, I have this drug in this little tube in my lab. Uh, you can come down the stairway and I can give this to you. That doesn't how it works. It needs to be FDA approved. It needs to go through clinical trials. It needs to have a safety. It was all, I completely agree with it. 
But what I don't see it is that all that takes money. And uh, once that money comes and then you have the comfort of, of going uh, to a store and, and buying that thing that's safe. And that's a part that I had a very hard time grappling with. Why is this taking so much money? Why do I need 10 times the money or five times the money that I need to do it in a lab setting? Uh, because there are certain things that I'm completely like blinded, like a, like a horse, which is, I have no idea where the toilet paper comes from. I have no idea where the uh, water, the DNI's water comes from, from my lab. I only know that, okay, I'm paying for this chemical, I'm doing this, and the rest is that I don't know who pays for my life. These are the things that you're blinded as, at least I'm blinded. There are probably other people who are much better than me. And then when you go into this, into this world of uh, entrepreneurship, like then, or, or starting a company, you ought to think about certain, all these things. You ought to think about the first thing people ask you is that, what is the value of that company? I'm like, how do you even get the value of that company? <laughs> what is the formula? You're stuck <laughs> in this physics mode, right? Is that reproducible? Like, where do you get that? Like, $100 million valuation. Where do you get that? Where do you put that from? <laughs> and they, uh, I personally think even now, I don't know where to pull that from. You have some <laughs> guidelines, some markers, and then like, oh. you know, the success in each point of this is- I'm so wonderfully school. honest, honest. Oh, brilliant. You go to a business school guy, they go look at this market. They say, okay, this is the market. I was like, how do you know there's not another company is going to come and do that before <laughs> you? You don't know any of these things. I seems this number, uh, I really think somebody should come up with a scientific way of doing it, which is completely reproducible. I don't think that's possible. And these kind of numbers may be very uncomfortable. So as long as we're giving science pitch to VCs, they're really good. But the problem with the VCs is that they believe our science. They want to say like, okay, are you willing to be the CEO? Like, no, and I, you don't want to do that with your money. <laughs> if I were you, I wouldn't do that. And then these are the questions that then that becomes a much harder question. So you need to wear a different hat and have a lot of respect for these people who would wear that hat. I, I wouldn't because... You need to see things. I almost, I think it's a visionary type of thing. You need to see things beyond the granularities. And most of us are stuck in the granularities. Like, or like okay, where does this come from? It, it, you need to kind of have a vision and go with it. Kind of what Elon Musk and people do is just, just go with it and there's going to be failures. And it's hard, at least for a trained, like for people with my way of I look at things to, to come up with those things. And uh, so that's where the, but, but, the, but I completely now appreciate the value of commercializing it because without that, it's, it's absolutely futile. It's going to be in some publication unless some, somebody comes into it. So I think there is, I, I wish there were better ways of, of uh, getting these two worlds uh, together. For example, like a, a disease like sickle cell anemia, I think if there was uh, enough uh, non-commercial interest in that, people would have found a drug uh, a lot longer uh, before what we have today because there's not enough return for investment on, on, on such of these rare diseases. I wish there's, these two worlds could come, come together in, in a way that is not fully profit-oriented, but at, at the end of the day, I completely now understand that both sides of the equations are, are important because you don't... Uh, money, I mean, money doesn't fall from air. Uh, so I, I do understand the value of IP. I do understand why it's there. Uh, it's there so that people can develop this rather than um, uh, I probably was a hippie before that uh, and, uh, <laughs> this journey. I think every scientist should start this journey because we, should, we always think of leaving things at a particular thing and somebody else is taking on uh, after where you left to get it to somewhere else. But I think this kind of put things into perspective but I also think that changes could be made on the other side as well. Um, but uh, I'm, 
I'm a very novice in that field to even suggest that, but I, I did it anyway. <laughs> Good for you. Hari, I, I don't want to say too much after that and butcher your beautiful words with mine, other than to just say that I agree. And I, I think that, that that is a sentiment that I've wished ever since my awakening of how the world actually works. And yeah, sadly, value needs to be realized. And we realize that through a mechanism of, well, call it capitalism, right? And that is what pushes us forwards, um, rightly or wrongly, depending on what your political uh, beliefs are. But that is the world in which we exist. And therefore, starting a company to do exactly what you're doing and actually create that value in the world and give society what it needs is, yeah, exactly what needs to happen. And, and kudos to you for doing so. Um, and just as to I add to that, right? Yeah, uh, even, even the commercial aspect is what is helping us. For example, our, our collaboration with with, with AWS uh, is is a commercial entity, and that yes. commercial entity is providing us with uh, with computational power that is unheard of, uh, right? And uh, to then go and, and create the, more impact, and that's exactly. it, right? And the, uh, the 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 beautiful thing I see with this collaboration is that they are a commercial entity, but when we collaborate with them, I collaborate with people who think about the science. They yes. said, hey, can we work on the code? And that's the beauty that I see nice. in this commercial entity. Somebody's like, we talk about science. We normally talk about what we're doing. We talk about general science. Hey, what about this variant? And then we talk about that in our in our call. I think in every commercial entity, there is the scientific curiosity, which I think that's curiosity is what drives everything, James, in my, in my thing. And uh, we have this wonderful, uh, there's uh, uh, the person in AWS who looked at our code and maybe we can make a few tweaks over here to even run this better on AWS system. Wow. Let's go with that. And they could have just not even looked at that code. It's that yes. curiosity in every sphere, wherever I go. Uh, I think that's what drives, in my opinion, uh, Earth. And uh, let's be curious about everything. <laughs> what, what a lovely note to end on. Hari, thank you so much. You are a wonderful communicator. I have never heard so many analogies the word beauty used so much to describe molecules and code and i think the way that you combine language and education with hard science and computational physics and computational biology i think um oh, well, it's, well it's just been it's just been a pleasure is all i can say and thank you so much for coming on to Very this podcast uh, uh, allowing to, to, to have this conversation and uh, while having this conversation I, I kind of i think i had some new uh, revelation for myself so oh wonderful uh, for that <laughs> you're very welcome i'm i'm so pleased to hear that Harry. honestly if people want to get in touch with you or they want to learn more about virtual flow or they want to learn about anything that you're up to at harvard or, or anything what's the best way for them to either get in touch with you or find out more Send send me an email, and uh, if I don't respond to the email within twenty four hours, kindly resend the email again. <laughs> it's hurry at hms.harvard.edu. Amazing, and we will put that email address in the description of this episode. Hari, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, James. Thanks, thanks again, and uh, hopefully uh, our paths will cross uh, sometime. I hope so, my friend. Right. I hope so. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.